So we're carrying on our study in the book of Genesis, and we've come as far as chapter 10. Uh, and this is one of those chapters in the Bible that critics love to have a go at. Uh, and they love to tell us that this isn't real and this isn't, you know, and even I, I put a, a blog up on the, the website the other day, uh, and I've mentioned this a number of times before, but a prominent Christian leader once said to me that the first 11 chapters of Genesis was just Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. Now, now this was an individual that is very well known and respected, an evangelist, used to be at all the conferences and everything else. And his impression was that this is just not worth the paper it's written on. This is just some spiritual thing and it illustrates that God created, you know, in a way or somehow. And, you know, it's so sad that the world has got its twisted, distorted view. But even worse, that many within the church don't trust these things. So we're going to look at the details in a, in a short while, but let's just bring ourselves up to speed. We've had a few weeks since we've been in the book of Genesis. So the story so far, okay, God created all things and declared it very good. Now it's important to understand that. That's not just a, a little kind of side remark. God said that everything that he had created was very good. As he looks at the world, Genesis 1 verse 28, that is the conclusion of God's creation. Everything was wonderful. It it couldn't have been better. That's the way our God does things. You know, we look at the complexity in nature. I I sent an email out, Leon forwarded it to me this week, and I sent it out to just a few people. Uh, It was fantastic. Talking about ice cream, but specifically vanilla ice cream. Do you know vanilla ice cream disproves evolution? Did you know that? It's a wonderful fact. Uh, And the the story's great. I'll I'll send it out tonight, actually, when we send the, the church email out. But it basically, the, 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 the summary is that this vanilla grows as a vine in Mexico. It's the only place in the world that it typically would grow. Now, in order for this to pollinate, there's a special bee, or there's a particular type of bee. It's the only bee in the world that does this. But it's complicated because it has to kind of lift up this little flap on the petal to be able to pollinate. And it can only do it on one day of the year. And they tried to mass-produce vanilla elsewhere in the world, and they failed abysmally until they found, with obviously uh, you know, scientific uh, exploration and so on, various ways that they could actually do this manually, but it's still a very expensive process. It doesn't happen naturally anywhere else. Now, you have to have everything working together at once in order to be able to get vanilla. So next time you have an ice cream, just remember that. That God has designed things just so incredibly. God did make all things very good. Now, of course, we know that things went wrong. Because we're introducing scripture to this individual who was previously known as Lucifer. We're told in Ezekiel chapter 28 um, that he was the anointed cherub. He he was in this incredible position of authority that God had given him. He had access to the throne of God. He walked up and down in in the midst of the the, the coals, the stones that were in front of the the throne of God. Seemingly, he'd been given this highest position above the other angels. And of course, as God is creating this world, just as we've looked a number of times now, we see this dramatization of this, really, in the book of Esther. Just as Haman and Mordecai, and Mordecai goes in, uh, also, Haman goes in to see the king, and he's already just got this real hatred towards Mordecai the Jew. And the king's been up all night, and he's read about this plot that 
Mordecai discovered where these two individuals were trying to try and kill and assassinate the king. And the king realizes that nothing was done for Mordecai. So he says to his chamberlain who's there, who's out in the cordon, of course, Haman's just arrived. So Haman comes in and the king says, you know, what should the king do to the man whom he delights to honor? And of course, Haman, this pride thinks, well, it's got to be me that the king's talking about. So he reels off a whole bunch of stuff. You know, get your coarse king and uh, your, your royal robe and your ring and get somebody to parade this man through the streets. And he's seeing this picture of him going through the streets on his horse and everybody saying, oh, how great Haman is. And then the king says, okay, great, good idea. You do that for Mordecai. And of course, Haman is mortified. But that's exactly what happens back in the Garden of Eden. That Satan's looking on at this world that God has made really good thinking, to whom is God going to give this if it's not me? I'm the anointed cherub. And we know this because we're told, Paul tells Timothy, that Satan's sin was pride. And Isaiah 14 tells us that Satan had said in his heart that he wanted to be like God. You see, no angel was made like God, only mankind. Adam was made like God in the image and likeness of God. And Satan craved that position. And so, of course, Satan then deceives man. And as a result of this, wants to destroy him. It leads, of course, to the fall, sin coming into the world and so on. Death, suffering, all of these things. But God in his mercy in Genesis 3.15 promises a saviour. The seed of the woman. The one who is to come. A kinsman of Adam. Somebody who is related to Adam. Who legally is entitled to claim back that which Adam lost. And again, the book of Ruth is a wonderful dramatization of this whole idea of somebody losing their inheritance and then being able to claim it back. A kinsman, a member of the family, claiming back that which had been lost. Well, as a result of this, Satan then launches a full-scale attack against the seed. But the problem is he doesn't know who the seed is going to be. We just know it's going to be the seed of the woman. But who? Well, of course... The first thought is it's going to be Abel. And so Satan, working behind the scenes, working in Cain's heart, Cain deciding that he's not going to do things God's way, that he wants to do things his way. And of course that is rebellion, sin. That leads to the situation, of course, where Abel is murdered. Or then Satan launches another assault. This intrusion into the human race that we looked at and studied back in Genesis chapter 6. See, Satan realized that we couldn't just take out one individual because we don't know, or he didn't know who the seed was going to be. So let's just destroy the lot. So we have this horrible situation with these angelic beings and the women of the earth and the offspring thereof become the giants and so on that we read of in so much of history and folklore and legend. But it had a real beginning And so it's on the back of that that we find that God sends a flood. You know, a lot of the world get very confused as to why a God of love would send a flood to wipe out the whole world. When you realize the problem that existed, it was an act of mercy and grace that God sent that flood to preserve mankind. You see, we're told that only Noah was perfect in his generations. doesn't mean he was perfect or without sin. Noah was genetically pure, uncorrupted. And so God engineers and arranges for Noah and his sons to build this ark 
a way of escape. And of course, even in that, we see these pictures and these types that Christ is the ark. There's only one door into the ark. And we, of course, have this one way to God through Jesus and so on. Well, that then leads to this period of time after the flood. And again, Genesis 6 warns us that those angelic beings would do the same thing after the flood. The same This happened before the flood and the same afterwards. So Satan launches a more subtle threefold stratagem now. Again, remember his intent is to stop the seed of the woman coming. He wants to retain this world. Satan wanted this world. It's very interesting that the um, Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, actually, with all the, the planets that we know of in the solar system, attributed each one of them to an angel. Now, whether there's anything in that, I really don't know. And to be honest, I'm not that bothered about that. But they do have this belief that each of the planets were given to a certain angel. Well, that does kind of play into the whole scenario of why Satan wanted this earth that had been made so fantastic, so unlike any other planet. I mean, we hear all the time, don't we, that scientists and so on, astronomers, are, are desperately searching for a planet that's like Earth somewhere. And there is none, because Earth was a special creation by God. They can keep looking all they want. Now, the first part of this plan of Satan's was to establish a world government. And that's what we're going to see in these next couple of chapters. And the purpose of that was to manipulate mankind against the seed. And that's exactly what he tried to do the first time, and we're going to get on to talk about Babel. Maybe not this morning, but we'll get there in the next week or so. And But we see it going on again in the days in which we live. We'll talk more in a moment. The second part of this was false religion that Satan introduced. And this was to deceive mankind into following a false seed. This was incredible. We'll, We'll again expound in a moment. The third part was a seek and destroy plan. Again, really the follow-on of Genesis 6 to annihilate the threat of the real seed. And of course, after the flood, where is it that all these... Giants seem to be located in the Middle East. Now, having said that, and I'm going to make mention of uh, Bill Cooper's book After the Flood uh, a number of times this morning, but Bill in, in After the Flood goes through and documents that these giants are spread out around the world, even in this country. And there's real, credible, historical evidence. The world looks at this and thinks it's just nonsense, just a fairy tale. But when you look at the history you start to see how accurate these things are that the Bible tells us. They really did happen. These were real historical events. We know in Israel, they found in northern Israel, in Bashan, there's a book in the British Library. I think it's called The Lost Cities of Bashan. And the author actually goes through uh, this archaeological uh, discovery, this dig that they did, uh, and they found this city, this giant city. Everything was significantly larger than normal size. And of course we're familiar with the accounts we have in Scripture. You've got Og, king of Bashan, you've got Goliath later on and his brothers and, and many others. And it's never in Scripture presented as a story. It's presented as factual things. I mean, the whole reason that Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness was why? Because they didn't want to go into the land of Canaan because there were giants there. So, that was the third part of the plan. So, let me just unpack these things a little bit more. So that world government attempt was then abruptly halted at the Tower of Babel. That's what that was all about, building this big tower to try and keep everybody together, to exercise control over the world as it was growing. 
but it is being re-established right now in the days in which we're living. And probably next week we're going to get on to more of the details of that. And we see it quite alarmingly coming all back around, this whole idea of, of world government. And the Bible tells us that this world government will take up arms against the seed. Do you believe that? It's incredible. The world is going to try and fight against Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything more preposterous or more foolish. This is the creator of all things, and the world is going to go to war with Jesus. False religion, though. This, in all honesty, is a satanic stroke of genius. And and I really, truly mean that, because it was such a brilliant way of deceiving people. Because already the idea of the seed of the woman was starting to spread out in this fledgling world following the flood. Again, the seek and destroy plan we've already mentioned. As I said, we looked at that in chapter 6. And that kept occurring until the time of David. And finally David and his men destroyed the last remnants. But as I said already, it's become the basis of legend of folklore. I mean, particularly when you think of Greek mythology. There's so much there that speaks of these uh, giant beings and so on. That second section is a, an area we're going to look at in more detail as we go through uh, these two chapters. Now, again, I'll show you where we've got to. We've gone through those first uh, few chapters dealing with creation, the fall of man, Cain and Abel. In chapter 5, the genealogy of Noah, the flood of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9. So we're now at that point looking at the table of nations and the Tower of Babel. And then we'll move on to that second section of the book where we really begin to start to see what the Old Testament is all about. Israel. This nation that God had called into being for one express purpose and that was to ensure the safe delivery of the seed. Now the other thing that God did through Israel was to give us his word. So Israel are very important for those two principal reasons. Of course, the main reason was that Jesus could be born. And so we find in Revelation chapter 12, Israel with this clothing, this protection, to ensure that the seed of the woman could be safely brought into this world at the right time, in God's time. So the rest of the book deals with that. Now we find that after the flood, they travel from the east, and we're going to see that in chapter 11, that reference, and they come to this area, the plain of Shinar, the area of Babel, or it's Iraq today, uh, not far from Baghdad, and we'll look at uh, lots of details as we go over these things uh, over the coming weeks. But let's jump into chapter 10. Now to start with, before we actually look at the text, I want to just read you something from uh, After the Flood by Bill Cooper. This is such a great book. I mean, Bill wrote this um, some years ago. If you've not got a copy, I'd really encourage you to get a copy. Uh, I mean, it says on the front here, The early post-flood history of Europe traced back to Noah. Uh, At the back of the book, Bill's got a, a, a chart, a genealogy, that traces the kings and queens of this country back to Noah. There is a, a chart, the same thing, apparently up in Lambeth Palace in London. I'm not sure why they don't look at it and believe it, but, you know. Um, you may see on the back wall this morning, uh, we've got another post that we put up there. That actually goes from Noah all the way down to Jesus. Again, just drawing, looking at one of these particular lines, the line of Shem, uh, that comes down from Noah's sons all the way from Adam down through to Noah to Shem and then down through to Jesus. And you see the incredible detail that is recorded in Scripture But let me just read you this quote from Bill Cooper. He says this, It's commonly thought in this present age that nothing is worthy of our belief unless first it can be scientifically demonstrated and observed to be true. 
It was assumed without further inquiry that nothing in especially the earlier portions of the biblical record could be demonstrated to be true and factual. This applied particularly to the book of Genesis. In other words, we were solemnly assured in the light of modern wisdom that historically speaking, the book of Genesis was simply not worth the paper it was written on. On the one hand, I had the Bible itself, claiming to be the very word of God. And on the other, I was presented with numerous commentaries that spoke with one voice in telling me that the Bible was nothing of the kind. It was merely a hodgepodge collection of Middle Eastern myths and fables that sought to explain the world in primitive terms. Now, it simply was not possible for both these claims to be valid. Only one of them could be right. So it was that then I decided to select a certain portion of Genesis and submit it to a test which, if applied to any ordinary historical document, will be considered a test of the most unreasonable severity. And I would continue that test until either the book of Genesis revealed itself to be a false account, or it would be shown to be utterly reliable in its historical statements. What I had not expected at the time was the fact that the task was to engage my attention and energies for more than 25 years. The test that I devised was a simple one. If the names of the individuals, families, peoples and tribes listed in the table of nations, and this is Genesis 10, were genuine, then those same names should appear also in the records of other nations of the Middle East. It was simply not realistic to expect that every name would have been recorded in the annuals of the ancient Middle East and would have survived to the present day. I therefore would have been content to have found, say, 40% of the list vindicated. In fact, that would have been a very high achievement, given the sheer antiquity of the Table of Nations itself and the reported scarcity of the surviving extra-biblical records from those ancient times. But when, over my 25 years of research, that confirmatory evidence grew past 40% to 50% and then 60% and beyond, it soon became apparent that modern wisdom in this matter was wide of the mark. Very wide of the mark indeed. Today I can say that the names so far vindicated in the table of nations make up over 99% of the list. And I shall make no further comment on that other than to say that no other ancient historical document of purely human authorship could be expected to yield such a level of corroboration as that. In other words, this is true. It is unquestionably true. It has been proven historically to be true. People that reject Genesis do so purely on the basis of ignorance, not on the basis of any evidence that they may presume they have. So let's look at this list again. All of these details have been verified historically. So we read Genesis 10 verse 1. Now these are the generations, just pause for a moment. Do you remember we've seen already that term, that toledath is the word we have in the Hebrew. And a number of times we have this through the book. We have the generations of Adam and so on. And it kind of sets these little marker points in the book. Well, this is another one now. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And we're given three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, just a quick comment here, because Shem, it doesn't seem, was the eldest. And we'll see that as we go through the text. But he's listed first. 
And you'll find this very often in the Bible, and it's helpful if you understand why. It's because God always places first in the list those that are most important for the biblical narrative, the biblical account. So in some accounts you'll find when we get to Genesis 14, we have a list of kings there. The king that is listed first is the king of Babylon, even though he wasn't the most significant. But in terms of the interaction with Israel, he would become the most significant. So often you'll find a list. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have an age order here. In fact, we don't. But the ones that are always listed first, seemingly, and this is consistent through the Bible, are the ones who are most important to God's plan and dealings with man. So, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we're told, unto them were sons born after the flood. So, Here we are, our family tree, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we're going to start now our list by looking at Japheth. Although Shem's listed first, as we said here, we're going to start seemingly now in age order of the way this is actually given to us. So Japheth is the one we're going to look at. And we're told, let's do the sons of Japheth. So we're now going to get his genealogy and so on. Gomer and Magog, Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tyrus. And then we're now going to break that down to the grandsons. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagama. And the sons of Javan, okay, so we're another one of the, the, uh, the grandsons, effectively. Uh, Elash, and Tarshish, and Kitten, and Dodaim. Uh, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided, it's an important point there, in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after the families in their nations. Now, What we've got in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, in Genesis 11 we're going to get the account of the Tower of Babel. And of course we're familiar that that's the point when the languages of the earth are all divided up and everybody starts speaking differently. And this is the reference to that that we're told here that by these these families, the Isles of the Gentiles, in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families. So it's speaking of the division of the world in terms of the groups that people settled in and moved to the geographically areas they moved to but the division was in regard to language okay some people will argue and we'll see reference in the next chapter um, to an individual by the name of Peleg and we're told that in his days the earth was divided and some people think that's referring to the breakup of the continents or uh, continental drift or something else Nothing of the of the sort. The Pangaea, these ideas that have been put forward and everything else. Now, no question that the the earth was one landmass. The Bible already states that. But this is not talking about that division. That division, if anything, occurred at the time of the flood. What we then have at the time of the Tower of Babel is the division of the earth in terms of the language groups that spread out from that point. So, let's just look at this, make it a bit easier to uh, read and understand. So we've got these, again, three sons. So we're looking at Japheth and his descendants then. We have all listed for us here. Gog, sorry, Goma and Magog, Madai again, Javan, Jubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. And then the ones that are mentioned specifically in this list, uh, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Tagama, uh, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, uh, and Dedanim. Again, if you want to mispronounce these at home, you're welcome to do so. I'm just doing my, my best uh, with these names. And probably somebody that's fluent in Hebrew would be horrified, but we'll just you know, move on. So, let's have a look then at some of the details that we're given. So, Goma. Now, we know from Herodotus, who's regarded as uh, the father of Greek history, a great historian, uh, Plutarch and others, um, that from Goma were descended the Sumerians. 
uh, and they settled along the, the Danube River and the Rhine uh, and so on. Uh, Ashkenaz, uh, one of them mentioned in this list, ended up in the area of Germany. Some of you may have heard of the Ashkenaz Jews, uh, the German Jews. Uh, again, that Ashkenaz uh, settled in the area of Germany. Uh, Rifaf, Interestingly, Josephus, um, uh, Paphlagonians, uh, tells, Josephus tells us that this is from where they are descended. Uh, Europe also comes from this group, the actual name Europe, um, from uh, one of the languages. Um, it comes derived from Rifath. Tagama, uh, the Armenians, Turkey, Turkestan, and so on. Uh, and then you've got Magog also mentioned. Now, the descendants of Magog will be what we would refer to historically as the Scythians. Now, sometimes these things get a little bit complicated because we deal with names that we're not familiar with. But the reason for that is that over the the ages, over the centuries, we've changed the names of places. You know, there used to be a place called Byzantium. We changed the name to Constantinople. And then it got changed to Istanbul. You know, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the Babylonian Empire before it had risen. I mean, Isaiah is somewhere around 700 BC, and he's prophesying about Babylon, but it incredibly even speaks further into the future about the Persian Empire, which was the empire that then followed on after Babylon. Now, how would Isaiah speak of Persia when it doesn't yet exist in that sense? Well, he used the ancient name. He refers to it as Elam. You see, these are the names as they were originally. What's happened over the ages is that we've changed the names of some of these things. But there are plenty of historical records to show us where these groups came from. And uh, again, you've got a list here of individuals. Hesiod, uh, a Greek didactic poet in the, about the 8th century. Herodotus, again, I just mentioned. Uh, again, uh, and we know that the Scythians were the forebears of the Russians. And they have some very interesting military tactics that Russia as a nation have also picked up and used uh, in catalogued through history. It's very interesting uh, the way that these people groups have infiltrated and that their uh, particular characteristics have carried on. Okay, we then have Medai, the descent or the, the forebear of the Medes, or the Kurds as we know them. Uh, Tubal, again, we're talking about the area of Turkey. And also Meshach, again, the area round about Turkey. Uh, and those names, again, it's very interesting to give us a good understanding of Ezekiel 38. We'll mention that in just a moment. Um, Javan, the area of Iona and Greece. And then finally, uh, here we have Tyrus. Um, uh, these various groups are settled around the Aegean Sea uh, and various parts of, of Italy and so on. Now, just one interesting comment here, because it is kind of, partially relevant to us, uh, in this list is mentioned one of the descendants of Javan coming down from the line of Japheth is Tarshish. Okay, now this is again one of the sons. Um, so this is a great-grandson great of uh, Noah himself. Um, this individual is interesting because it seems quite probable that Tarshish ended up settling in the British Isles. And this country was previously known as Tarshish. Now you remember Tarshish is the place that Jonah tries to flee to. He was trying to flee as far away as he possibly could. We know that various historical records that there was trading between this country and other places in the world way back to four, five, six hundred BC and even further than that. And we've got other accounts. We know that Solomon used to send ships to Tarshish and it used to take about three and a half years for a round trip. Tarshish was, we know biblically in other places, was a source of tin. Well, this country we know, Cornwall particularly, was a great source of tin. 
And there's many other little links we have and uh, historical suggestions. So it's not proven, we can't make doctrine of it, but it does seem quite probable that Tarshish was the, the British Isles or the Tarshish came and settled here and so forth, his descendants, and this is why this country seemingly historically was known as Tarshish for a while. So we look at the spread of Japheth from that plain in Babylon where they were settled to start with and they spread out covering what is now effectively Europe and Russia and the southern slopes of Russia and so on all the way through really to, to the area of China and again even to this country. Now, as I said earlier, we've got these names that we find particularly in Ezekiel 38, Gog, uh, sorry, Gomer and Magog and Meshach and so on. Um, again, because we know where these individuals went, when we have this reference in Ezekiel 38 to these individuals, we have a really good understanding of which groups of people are going to be involved in this battle that the Bible speaks about that is yet to come. So the Bible doesn't talk about Turkey or Germany or Russia or because those names didn't yet exist. But the names that did exist when Ezekiel was making these records are the names that are given to us. And so we have a good understanding of the groups of people that will be involved. And seemingly what we're going to see in the days to come is a Russian-led Islamic invasion of Israel. That seems to be from the text what we have. Of course, the Bible makes it very clear that Israel will be victorious. And the result of that battle will be that many will come to the Lord. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that will occur before the rapture. Which means that could occur at any time now. I guess what we need to see for that to happen is real issues in the Middle East where Muslim countries are all in turmoil, are all involved and, you know, Russia getting involved as well. I mean, does that sound like anything we see today? Kind of does, doesn't it? And, and why is it that Israel would be caught up in this? Well, as you can see, they're right in the, the sandwich, right in the middle of all of this. And of course, they are hated by many nations in the world. They don't even exist on uh, any Muslim or Arab maps. Okay, just as an aside there, let's move on. Let's look at the next group down. So we're going to talk about Ham and his descendants. So we pick up in verse 6. And the sons of Ham were given Cush, Mithraim, Phut, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, Havala, Sabatha, uh, Rama, and Sabteka, and the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Again, we know historically where these individuals were. Um, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, and Mizraim begat Ludim, uh, Anamim, and uh, Lehabim, and Nafubim, and, the, and uh, Pathrusim, and Kalushim, out of whom came Philistim. Now, that's just an interesting aside. We're talking here, this is the area that we'll see in a moment. They settled very much in kind of North Africa, a lot of these individuals. Philistine came out of the area of Egypt. They moved later to Cyprus. And from Cyprus, they did a little hop across the water into the land that we then later know as Canaan. And it's from Philistine that we get the Philistines, who, of course, become Israel's enemies. Now means that the, the Philistines weren't the indigenous people of that land. They just moved there. They started taking over some of the area. But what is interesting is that later, when we get to Jesus' time and then we move on to the Romans, about 132 AD, uh, Emperor Hadrian and so on, um, renamed the land Palestina. It's the Latin of Philistine. Uh, because it was the name of Israel's enemies. 
And so incensed was he with Israel that they, they, they passed this decree that any Jew found in Jerusalem would be executed and so on. They forced Israel out of the land. Lots of history in all of this. But the result was that the land got named Palestine after Israel's enemies. But there was no indigenous Palestinian people as such. The reference, if any, was to the Philistines. So when we use that name, it's the name that was given to speak of those that were against Israel, which is just interesting. And then you've got uh, Kaphtorium and Canaan begat Sidon, the firstborn, and Heth, uh, and the Jebusites. Now, interesting, because later we'll find that uh, the Jebusites are the ones that end up in Jerusalem. And you'll recognize some of these names from Joshua's battles. The Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Avidites, uh, the Z- uh, Zimmerites, and the Hamathites and the Marmites. No, sorry, that's, that's not there. Uh, but all these ites are there. And afterwards, there were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon. Um, that's up north and north coast of the Mediterranean, or the uh, northern Israel in the area of Syria now today. Uh, and they'll come to Gerar and to Gaza, which is the southern Israel. So the whole area of Canaan is being referenced here. As thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and, and Zeboim, even unto uh, Lasha. And these are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nation. So... Again, we just break it down. Cush is the one that we're going to be very interested in in a short while. Uh, Mizraim, of course, becomes the area of Egypt, foot to the area of Libya, and so on. And then Canaan we're familiar with. Uh, and again, some of these names you may have uh, seen. Sheba and Dedan end up settling in the area of Saudi Arabia, and so on. Um, from Mizraim, again, you've got, as I said already, um, the, the Philistines come from that group. Uh, but that was very much the area of Egypt, both the... Uh, northern and southern Egypt as existed but from the Canaanite or from Canaan come the Canaanite tribes and these are the ones that Israel end up battling with when they go into the land okay, for very interesting reasons that we'll cover later on as we go through again I won't read through all of this you can it's really much of what we've said other than just to mention that uh, one of the descendants of Cush was an individual by the name of Nimrod and we'll see this in just a moment so, uh, yeah, oh, just one other thing to mention there. The Sinites uh, mentioned, it's from that word we actually get the name China. Um, so when we look on a map, we actually see the descendants of Ham settle in the area of Canaan, North Africa, but also spreading across to China as well. Um, and again, you just see on the map there some of those names and where they are today. And Cush begat Nimrod. So here we go. And we're told he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. So we're given this little commentary, just a short bit of information here about this individual. Okay, now seemingly what we have here, he's a mighty hunter, not just of animals, but of men. I'll come back and explain that in a second. But it's in defiance of the Lord. That's the implication in the, the, the Hebrew of what this actually means, that Nimrod was defying God. Now, I think this is very interesting because this idea that he was a hunter, but specifically a hunter of men, I think is fascinating because we've all heard all sorts of legends and again, they go back to Greek mythology and, and so much else where we speak of these great heroes that went and tracked down these giants and killed them. Just suppose that Nimrod, in this time after the flood, decides that he's going to start going out. He's brave enough to go and tackle some of these, and he starts destroying them. He's going to gain some sort of reputation, isn't he? 
But what we find is that Nimrod effectively becomes one of the first world dictators. Tries to bring everybody together. And we'll talk about the connection he has with the Tower of Babel probably in a bit more in detail next week. But I think what we see going on here is Nimrod going out and hunting down these giants and gaining popularity and notoriety and so on. Again, this line that we have, Noah to Ham to Cush and to Nimrod. Now, you remember also that strange account we had where Ham happens to walk in while Noah's sleeping one day after he's been drinking and he's uncovered and so on. And a curse is placed upon Canaan, which is one of Ham's children. Strange situation. We read in verse 10, speaking of Nimrod, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. This whole region is where he begins his kingdom. And this is the first reference we have to, to that which he was trying to do, to establish a throne effectively, to become a world leader. And in many ways, Nimrod becomes a very much a type of antichrist, trying to pull the world together. His name actually means to rebel. We'll see that in just a moment. Now, again, kingdom, we told it Babel is where it kind of started off. Now, one suggestion, and this is by Alexander Hislop in his wonderful book, The Two Babylons, he suggests that the, the text we should understand is this, out of that land he, speaking of Nimrod, went forth into Assyria. The, the way it reads, certainly in the King James, is that out of that land went forth Asher, and it looks like the name Asher is actually a name rather than a place. But Alexander Hislop suggests that the way we should understand it is this, and I'll read his comment in a moment. Out of that land, he, speaking of Nimrod, who is the subject of the the text, went forth into Assyria and builded Nineveh. Now, this makes sense because we know he built Babel. And then he went on to build Nineveh and the city of Reboth and Kalna and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalna. The same is a great city. Now, again, Asher, we do know, was a son of Shem, who did set up camp in Assyria. But Asher means to be made strong. So the name Asher is there, but the name, meaning of the name is probably the more important part of this. So, again, the possible understanding of this is out of that land, he, Nimrod, went forth when he had been made strong and builded Nineveh and the city Reboth and Kalna. Let me just read you the quote from Alexander Hislop. He says, I am persuaded that the whole perplexity that commentators have hitherto felt in considering this passage has risen from that there is a proper name in the passage, where in reality no proper name exists. Asher is the passive participle of a verb, which in its Chaldee sense signifies being strengthened or made strong, and consequently signifies being strengthened or made strong. Uh, read thus, the whole passage is natural and easy. And the beginning of his of numerous kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna. And he says, a beginning naturally implies something to succeed. And here we find it in verse 11. Out of that land, he went forth being made strong, or when he had been made strong, Asher, that's the word, and builded Nineveh. And now this exactly agrees with the statement in the ancient history of Justin, and he quotes those things. So uh, I think we've still got a copy of um, uh, Alexander Hislop's book at the back there. But it really is a fascinating book, and he digs into so much incredible level of research that he's done. So just an interesting aside. It's not a major thing. I'm not making a big doctrinal thing of this. Um, but it seems to suggest that Nimrod not only was involved in the situation of Babylon, but from there spread out and started building these other cities as well. And certainly historically, there's a good support for that position. So 
There you go. Right. Nimrod himself then, their name actually means rebel. Uh, and as we've already said, it seems to be the first world dictator, uh, the founder of Babylon, Nineveh, and so on, uh, and continued in his father's, that's Cush, footsteps by trying to unite the world under his control. Now, just jumping the gun a little, we're going to see that the Tower of Babel was Cush's brainchild, if you like. It was his idea to unite the world together. Nimrod, his son, now carries on in the same vein. And in that sense becomes this model of Antichrist. Now, what we're told is that he died or probably was killed whilst out hunting. That left an awkward situation because his wife, a lady by the name of Semiramis, was pregnant at the time. And this is incredible. Because this is then the, the route from here of pretty much all false religions that are spread out around the world. Remember we said earlier that one of those arms of our threefold stratagem was false religion. Established at Babel, Babylon as we come to know it, Cush, grandson of Noah, ends up building the Tower of Babel. Nimrod, his son, becomes the first world dictator. And then seemingly, and again, Alexander Hislop has some really compelling information on this, suggests that he was killed by Shem. Because Shem was so incensed with his rebellion against God. Very, very interesting. So much more that we could talk about uh, surrounding this. Um, but that left, as I said, the situation that, uh, that Nimrod's wife then was in this kind of power vacuum situation. If Nimrod's now dead, who is going to carry on running and governing things? So seemingly what we have is that Semiramis then concocts this plan. I'm going to read to you from uh, Alexander Hisdrops and two Babylons. He says this. If there was one who was more deeply concerned in the tragic death of Nimrod than another, it was his wife, Semiramis, who from an originally humble position had been raised to share with him the throne of Babylon. What in this emergency shall she do? Shall she quietly forego the pomp and pride to which she had been raised? No. Though the death of her husband had given a rude shock to her power, yet her resolution and unbounded ambition were in flight. In life, her husband had been honoured as a hero. In death, she will have him honoured, sorry, she will have him worshipped as a god. Yea, the woman's promised seed, Zoroaster. Now this is really fascinating, because we see here Satan manipulating the circumstance to set up this worship of mother and child. Let me read on. So rather than give up her throne, Semiramis told the story that her husband Nimrod, though dead, had been brought back to life as her baby son. And so begins, as I said, the mother, also the worship of mother and child. There was already the knowledge spreading out around the world that the seed of the woman was going to come and be the Messiah, the Savior, the one to solve this predicament that man had found himself in. So. Satan, as always, with counterfeits, doesn't come up with a radically new plan. He, changes, he uses what is already understood, but just kind of changes the characters. So both Nimrod, now supposedly reincarnated as his own son, and Semiramis become worshipped as gods. She becomes known, and again, his look gives so many historical references to this, as the queen of heaven. And her son, who she names Tammuz, was hailed as the promised seed. And again, as I said, almost all false religion comes from this. People will talk about Zoroaster and they'll say, oh, that predates Christianity. No. It was a corruption 
of Christianity. Because Christianity, although we tend to think of it beginning really with the book of Acts and so on, and in that sense it does, but really what we believe goes right back to the creation of the world. But this was then a, a perversion of the gospel. So thousands of years before the birth of the real seed, Jesus Christ, false religions worshipping the mother and child were spreading out all around the world. In Egypt, you may have heard of these gods and goddesses and so on, we have the worship of mother and child. Again, just let me stop here, because when you start to look at the details, you've just got to join the dots, and you see how logical this is and why it happened. Every culture that had the worship of mother and child, where did that idea come from? It comes from Genesis 3.15. Again, in Egypt, mother and child worshipped as Isis and Osiris. In India, even to this day, you've got Issi and Iswara. In Asia, Sibel and Deusis. Deus, sorry. Uh, in pagan Rome, as Fortuna and Jupiter. In Greece, Irene and Plutus. Again, let me just quote from Hislop. He says this, Even in Tibet, in China and Japan, the Jesuit ministry, missionaries were astonished to find the counterpart of the Roman Catholic Madonna and her child as devoutly worshipped as in papal Rome itself. Xing Mu, the Holy Mother in China, being represented with a child in her arms and a glory around her, exactly as if a Roman Catholic artist had been employed to set her up. Let me just explain this. So these Jesuit ministry, missionaries go off into China and Japan expecting to try and convert them to Catholicism and they get there and they find they're already worshipping mother and child. Now, at the same time as all of this is going on, we find that the Hebrew Maseroth, which told God's plan of redemption in the stars, and that's another wonderfully fascinating study, had become corrupted into the zodiac. We don't need the stars anymore. We've got the gospel. We have the written account, the written word of God. But there was a time that God had revealed his plan of redemption in the stars. But that then gets corrupted into the zodiac, and people started using it to try and tell their future and so on. And of course, that's just so corrupted by the devil again you find that the, the, the zodiac as we know the phrase but really the Maseroth is the same in all cultures around the world I guess just again just points at a single point of origin but also coming from all of this we've got the idea of Christmas and Easter and Lent and Lady Day the idea of a rosary the sign of the cross which comes actually from the tea in Tammuz the worshipping of relics doctrine of purgatory elite priesthood the sacrifice of the mass, and so many other things, they all have their origin in Babylon, and they start spreading out around the world and getting twisted and adapted into different cultures and different religions. Again, you just look at that area. This is known as the Fertile Crescent, the bit that's highlighted in green there. Um, and those places all existed within that region, the, the, the area that Nimrod had control over. Okay, so let's run to the end now. Let's go from Genesis uh, 10, verse 21. And so now onto Shem... So now this is the last of these three children of Noah. And to Shem also, the father, uh, sorry, uh, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. So there you go, that's that reference to tell us that Japheth was older. Even to him were children born. And now we're going to have Shem's descendants. So we told the children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxed, and Lud, and Aram, and the children of Aram, Uz, and Hal, and Githa, and Mash. And Arphaxed begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. And by the way, that seems to be a suggestion of where the name Hebrew comes from. That from that name Eber. Okay. <clears throat> so that's those names listed. That's how it all breaks down. Again, this is uh, will be available online later if you want to see the and review it. Elam, 
again from Shem becomes the area of Persia, Iran. Asher again is Syria, that, that region uh, is where Asher settled. Uh, our facts said in Selah, Eber, this, this line running all the way down now, we're told, and unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. Now, this is what I mentioned earlier, for in his days was the earth divided. It's this time historically that the Tower of Babel actually occurs and that division takes place in the days of Peleg. And his brother's name was Joktan, and Joktan begat uh, Almadad and Shelfah and Hazar and Maveth and Jera and Hadaram and Uzel and Dikla and Ubal and Abimiel and Sheba and Ophir and Hevalia and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling was from Misha as thou goest unto Siphar, um, a mount of the east. Okay, so this line now comes down all the way down through these individuals that we've just seen. Okay, so the children of Shem. And the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations, these are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So we're told very clearly, this is the division of everybody following the flood and how they, they went out around the world. Now, of course, we're going to be interested in this group because that line is going to carry on down from Peleg through Ru, Serug, Nahor, Terah, and then ultimately we're going to get to Abraham. So this is why that line to us is, is, is very interesting. Now, again, this family, the Shem's descendants, really don't spread out very far at all. They stay in this region. Of course, Israel descended from them. The whole idea of Shem anti-Shemitic, Semitic, that's where that idea comes from, that's where that word comes from. Now, just a really interesting thing, just to mention in closing, is that when we look at these individuals, if we add up the names that we've just gone through in that list, in fact, I should ask you, if you're paying attention, who was counting? Anybody? That's not fair, is it? If we add them all up, we actually find that there's 26 that I mentioned for Shem, there's 30 for Ham and 14 that I mentioned under Japheth. He had it all out of the 70. Now, why is that interesting? Well, why it's interesting is because of what we're told in Deuteronomy 32. Is we read this in verse 8. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Okay? So we're told that in Deuteronomy 10:22, the number of the children of Israel that went down into Egypt was 70. And here we're told that there were 70 nations that comprised effectively all the families of the world. Just as this verse says, that God divided the nations their inheritance. And by the way, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we're told that God has divided the inheritance of the nations. It's not the United Nations that get to make this choice. It's not any other political group or power that can separate land up and say, you have that, but you have that. But God has already done that. And again, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Again, at the point we're looking at, Israel hasn't even yet been born in that sense. Abraham wasn't yet born. But as God was dividing up the nations, he divided it up into 70 specific, identifiable individuals and groups that came from those just as there were 70 of the family of Jacob that went down into Egypt. You see, again, God's control. Okay, we'll leave it there because we're at the end of the chapter. 
next week we'll pick up, we'll look at the Tower of Babel and again, lots of, hopefully, I hope you find it exciting uh, as we start to draw a lot of history together. You see, what this does and what this should do and hopefully what I've been able to communicate is that all of history can be explained so clearly when you start to use the Bible as your foundation. You start to see the spread of the nations around the world. And you start to see the spread of false religion around the world. And you start to understand why these things came into being. You know, people often say, well, if there's a, a God, why does he allow so many religions? It's because of, of an enemy, the devil, who wants to deceive people. And then people will tell us, oh, well, you're very arrogant saying that your way is the only way. No, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. You know, there is only one way. There is only one truth. We can't just have multiple choices. We don't get to choose what we think may or may not be true. The Bible tells us the truth. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you, Lord, as your word says itself, that thy word is true from the beginning. And Father, we've seen already this morning the, the accuracy, the details that you have recorded. The way that, Lord, you have divided the world up. You have created these people groups around the world. Father, we see so much from your word. We see, Lord, that we are just as Paul, sorry, just as, as Luke records, as uh, I believe Stephen mentions in the book of Acts, that you have made of one blood all men to dwell on the earth. There is no place for racism or hatred of any people group and lord your word is very clear that you love all people equally and lord you desire that all would come to salvation and lord you went to extraordinary lengths to ensure that the seed of the woman our savior jesus christ could be born so that he could live that life of obedience and then die on that cross for our salvation so, Father, we do thank you for your word we thank you that it's true we thank you lord that it is so consistent and coherent from the beginning of Genesis through to the end of Revelation, we see your wonderful plan in all of these things. Father, may we be excited about your word. And Lord, knowing that it's true, may it change the way we think and the way we live our lives, that we would walk in obedience with you by faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.